Hi, I'm Tim Gillespie, and this is the Crosswalk Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. If you are one of our regular listeners, we are so glad you choose to journey with us, and we pray every single message inspires you and helps you to become the person God intended you to be, and of course, to love well. If you are already a giver, thank you so much. If this is something you have not yet done, I want to invite you to start doing that right now. Go to crosswalkvillage.com give and give a one-time gift, or even beyond that, become a recurring giver here at Crosswalk. And you can do that from wherever you're listening from. What is incredible about Crosswalk is that we have givers who don't live here in Southern California or near any of our other campuses, but support the work of Crosswalk from Southern California to the ends of the earth. Thank you for considering this. And now, listen to the message. My hope is you will allow Jesus to speak to you in a way that will change your life. What's happening, Crosswalk? Good to see you guys. Thanks for coming. Listen, we do need you to move in just a little bit. We've got some people um, sitting, standing. Actually, last service, we had 50 people standing and we had moved in. So if you could move in a little bit. So we've got some extra seats um, on the edges. That would be super cool. So then they can find a place to sit. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, it's It's, yeah, it's a problem. But what a great problem. What a great problem to have. Uh, we're going to miss Andy, and um, we've worked out an interim situation before we hire, so we'll tell you a little bit more about that next week, so our, our young people will be very taken care of, um, but we are, are sad to see Andy and Emily go. Um, we also want you to really take seriously um, the consideration of prayer for Crosswalk Jakarta that begins next week. It'll be March 2 there. It'll be March 1 here. There's about a 19-hour time difference. So on Friday during the day, if you could just lift them up in prayer for their first official Crosswalk service. We've, um, we've hired a pastor out there, and maybe a second one will be coming soon, we hope. And so um, they're really getting set and ready to go, and we're excited for that. So um, so if you've got family in Jakarta, or if you happen to be in Jakarta next weekend, I don't know. I don't know your travel schedules. It could happen. Um, if you happen to be there, come and worship with us. That would be really awesome. We are in week two of our invitation series. This is a seven-week series. And we started last week with chapter 18 in the book of Luke, kind of looking at the through line, which was persistence in prayer, as you remember, and the recognition that we need a savior, that we are, you know, standing in the need of an actual savior. And so today, that, all that to be said, it puts us in the place to ask this question, which is what stands between you and Jesus? And we're going to start right there. It's a simple question. Um, what gets in the way of you and Jesus, particularly if you're looking for him? But today I'd like to make a statement. And the statement is this, I like crowds of people. I do. I like crowds of people. I don't like groups of people. That's, that's, you know, disconcerting. But I like crowds of people. I didn't always like crowds of people. I remember being young and we were in London at Buckingham Palace. And, you know, when you're in London at Buckingham Palace, you got to see the changing of the guard. And so I remember I was probably eight years old, I think. And my dad had me in front of him and he was kind of moving me through this crowd because he liked to be up front. And we got up front and I was right against the, the gate that was there. And as the crowd got bigger and bigger, I got pushed further and further through and it got nerve wracking and I didn't like crowds. But by the time I was in seventh grade, I was six foot two. Crowds are very different when you're six foot two. Some of you will never experience this, and I apologize. 
Maybe in heaven you can make a deal with Jesus, but until then, you might just like groups of people, not crowds. And um, when you're six foot two or six foot three, uh, crowds are very different, right? Because they're just in the way a little bit, not too much. Um, the reason why I say this is we're studying from Luke chapter 19. Chapter 19 begins with a story that we all know because it has a song and we all know stories that have songs along with it. And I actually put in my notes on this particular slide, I actually put don't sing um, because I often do. And secondly, I send out my, ser- I send out my sermons um, when I finish them and I've recorded them. I send them out to our pastors of our other uh, campuses. They don't preach the same sermon by any means, but they use it as kind of a, a little bit of an anchor point to, you know, work their sermons with. And um, one, of them, one of them emailed me and was like, hey, on slide number seven, you tell us not to sing. Was that for us? <laughs> like, no, that's for me. Because all I have to do is sing one word and you know this song. Are you ready? I'm going to sing even though I said not to. Are you ready? Zacchaeus. That's good. That's good. You don't have to keep going unless you want to. He climbed up in a sycamore. Now let's not do it. Let's not do it. It's going to take too long. Some of you are still going. You know the song, right? And the song tells a story, but let's revisit it in a way that may change your perspective a little bit. Um, as you know, at the end of 18, Jesus was healing a, a blind beggar outside of Jericho. Now Jesus enters into Jericho and made his way through town. Um, this might come right after the incident. It seems like it, it, seems like it would. Um, but Jesus is walking through town. And now it was more difficult to walk through town because Jesus has gotten some traction. His ministry was pretty popular. People were really interested in being around him. So the crowd were pretty palpable. How many of you watch the Super Bowl? Anybody? Yeah, the, you are liars. Like it's, there's millions, billions of people watch the Super Bowl and I've asked every single service and like four people are like, yeah, I guess. You all watch the Super Bowl even if you just want to see Taylor Swift. But I was thinking about Taylor Swift when, Swift when I was reading this text. Let me explain why. It all comes together. Just wait with me. Um, so Jesus was having trouble because there were crowds all around. And I'm thinking about like this crazy obsession that people have with Taylor Swift, whether it's positive or negative. You know, there's people who are like, she's the greatest evil in all the world, which seems weird. Um, and then there's people who are like, she's the best thing ever. And it's like, well, that's uh, weird too. Um, but, but she must have a very difficult life. <laughs> Let me explain why I'm saying that. It's got to be hard to be that famous. It's got to be hard to go anywhere. My, my family and I, we did something on Thursday night that we haven't done in so long. And it's just a typical thing, right? We're sitting there and we'd finished dinner and my wife goes, you know what? I'd really like some soft serve ice cream. And I'm like, yeah, let's get some soft serve ice cream. And everybody's like, yeah. And then my wife's like, no, it's eight o'clock. We're not going to do that. And I'm like, no, let's do it. So we all pile in the car and we go to Dairy Queen, like an old school Dairy Queen stand that they have in Riverside. And like, we're just standing there eating Dairy Queen. And I thought, you know what? Taylor Swift can't do this. I didn't really think that that night, but I'm thinking that now. Taylor Swift can't do that. We just go to Dairy Queen. Our lives are better than Taylor Swift's. Of course, she can buy Dairy Queen and have a whole one in her bedroom. So maybe, I don't know. Anyway, that seems like too much about Taylor Swift at this point. Jesus entered into Jericho, made his way through the town. It's difficult because there's lots of crowds. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. 
Why had he become very rich? He became very rich on the backs of his fellow countrymen. By the way, only Luke tells the story. I don't know if you know that. Only Luke tells the story. And, and Luke always puts tax collectors in pretty good light. Weirdly, he always puts wealthy people in pretty bad lights. And so we, we've kind of got this juxtaposition going on. Luke 19.3, he tried to get a good look at Jesus, but was too short to see over the crowd. So he's, it's a physical problem, right? He's too short to see Jesus. By the way, that means Jesus can't see him either, right? Uh, do you remember when you were learning to drive and they told you, like, if you go by an 18-wheeler, make sure you can see their mirrors? Because if they can't see their mirrors, they can't see you. If you can't see their mirrors, they can't see you. And you don't really believe it until that one almost turns into you on a right-hand turn. And they're like, oh, that's what the instructor said. Right? So this is the thing. Zacchaeus probably was thinking, well, if I can't see Jesus, Jesus can't see me. So maybe we should ask this question. What is it in your life that keeps you from seeing Jesus? And are you hiding, right? Are you hiding? Do you go behind a wall, right? And what is that wall made up of? Is it made up of cynicism or maybe fear or anger, maybe disappointment, tragedy? You know, when I was younger on a cereal box, there was a, you could mail in to get a spy kit right? And I was pretty excited. This is before Amazon, before you could push a button and it would be there in the afternoon. Which by the way, does that still weird you out? When you can order something, it'll be it to you three minutes later. It's crazy. Anyway, so I had to like mail in my few dollars and get, and I got a spy kit and I don't remember everything that was in it, but I do remember it had a mirror that could see around a corner, which is just two mirrors. I don't know why I was so excited about that, but I didn't, I, I didn't understand that at the time. I was not an engineer. I was nine. And uh, I remember I would stand looking down the hallway in this mirror in my house, and the only thing I would see is my sister walking down the hallway. It was not very exciting. See, here's the thing. When you build a wall so you can't see Jesus and you think Jesus can't see you, you got to remember this. Jesus can see around corners, Right? We're not in a situation where if we can't see Jesus, he can't see us. He can see around corners. He can see over and under walls. He can see us. Zacchaeus didn't know that. So what he did is he said, I got to get the obstacles out of this way. So I got to get a different perspective. I got to go find a different vantage point. So he ran ahead, climbed up a sycamore tree, fig tree, sycamore fig tree, beside the road. For Jesus was going to pass that way. So he's hedging his bets a little bit. He wanted to make sure that he could see Jesus. I'm sure he didn't think that Jesus would call him out. He was curious. He knew that seeing Jesus was a bit of a novelty. And I'm sure that all he wanted was just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Same thing we do. We settle for a glimpse when Jesus is trying to give us so much more. We try to get to a vantage point where maybe we can just catch a glimpse of Jesus when he's actually interested in something very different for our lives. So you know how the story goes. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he says, Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. There's a bunch of stuff going on here. First of all, how does he know Zacchaeus' name? Nobody told him. The only, there's, there's two things. One, the author doesn't tell us, so we don't know. So this is just musing. This is not biblical material. But one of the things is that he was the chief tax collector of the region and probably was pretty notorious. So he was well known. So a little man, a wee little man up in a tree, um, may have been something that Jesus noticed. Or Jesus just knew, doesn't matter, right? But then he said this, I must be a guest in your home today. Why must he be a guest in Zacchaeus' home? 
Why is it necessary to go there? Why must he go there? Well, it's interesting because in the ancient culture of the time, the request that he must go there revealed an acceptance of Zacchaeus, right? This stunned the crowd. Zacchaeus thought he had gotten rid of the obstacles to just seeing Jesus, but Jesus got rid of the obstacles to knowing Zacchaeus. What obstacles did he get rid of? In that one fell swoop by saying, I must go to your house, go to your house, he got rid of cultural obstacles. Zacchaeus wasn't well liked because of his job in which he was working with another culture. He was working with the Roman culture, right? And he was using his own people to get rich. Then there's status obstacles, right? He was very wealthy. And like I said, Luke showed tax collectors in a pretty good light, but never wealthy people. His wealthy status was hurting him in the town because of the source of his wealth. And then, of course, there's just the sin obstacles. Jesus was willing to look beyond it all. This is important. Clearly, Zacchaeus was a sinner. He was cheating people. We know that. He says it. But Jesus doesn't call out his sin. The proximity of Zacchaeus to Jesus is what makes all the difference. We'll see this in just a moment. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. So he knew what was happening. He knew what was going on. He knew it wasn't usual. So he didn't hesitate. But of course, there's people around, right? And the people, but the people were displeased. He's gone to the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. What would people say if Jesus went to your house? Do you think they'd say he's going to a notorious sinner? Yeah, like, I'm not a notorious sinner. I'm just a sinner sinner. A notorious sinner is somebody who's really good at it. All right? What would you say if Jesus went to somebody's house you knew? Would you be grumbling? Would you be upset? Listen, the truth is this. We're all sinners, but we think other people's sin is much worse than ours. And that's kind of a universal truth. What they do, well, let's be clear. What I assume or I think they do is much worse than what I know I do. That's how we get through life sometimes. Making sure we think there's somebody around who's worse than us. Right? I, you guys know me. I don't preach about sin a whole lot. There's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I feel like we know. I've never thought, sat through a sermon on sin and be like, I never knew I was doing that. I'm so grateful this pastor called that out. I've never felt that. Maybe you have, and maybe I'm just a poor preacher, but um, I've never done that. I've never sat there. and sp- So that's one of the reasons why. I just feel like we all kind of know what sin it is that we're struggling with. And when I, I don't need to be calling it out for you. I do like it when somebody comes up and asks me, like, I need you to preach on, you need to preach on this sin. There's usually one in particular. And I'm like, oh, are you having problems with that? And they're like, no, no, not me. I'm like, well, then why would you want me to preach on a sin you're not having trouble with? Well, those people, oh, well, I'm not worried. They're not asking for that. You seem to be asking for it. How can I help you? That doesn't go very well, that conversation. All right? Meanwhile, and this gets really interesting. Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. So he's right in the proximity. He's right there with Jesus. And he says, listen, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated people out of their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. By the way, when you wrong someone economically in that culture, the worst punishment was to have to give four times the amount that you took. So he self-imposed, unprompted by being convicted of some sin by Jesus, unprompted, he decides he will pay the worst punishment for the cheating that he's done. 
He didn't try to get out of it. He actually forwarded it himself. It's repentance and recompense. And you notice Jesus never said a word about his sin. Zacchaeus repented and created a way to compensate those he had cheated. Not because he was called out on his sin, but because Jesus came close to him. By the time Zacchaeus was standing in front of Jesus, he was getting rid of that which was standing in the way of his proximity to Jesus. He knew his sin. He knew his mistakes. Jesus didn't have to call them out. When we stand before Jesus, we know all that we are and we know all that he is. And it changes us. It creates in us a desire for a righteousness to make sure that there's nothing that's going to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39. And then Jesus says this, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Now this is important. The reason why this is important is that through these words, Jesus then restores Zacchaeus not only to righteousness, he restores him back into the community that he had cheated and that he had hurt. He restored him back and he said, he's a true son of Abraham. This man is from your same lineage and he's part of this community. And then Jesus clarifies and he says, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus reminds us that he didn't come for those who had figured it all out, but for those who have a lot standing in their way of their relationship with God. You know what this tells us? It tells us that obstacles for us are not obstacles for Jesus. And we see it in scripture all the time. Water separates me from Jesus. Just walk on it. Sickness, we'll just heal it. Death, not an issue. Sin, forgiveness fixes that. The list goes on and on. What separates you from Jesus? Because he knows how to get rid of it. And by the way, we see this in chapter 19 too. And we see this in a powerful way. So we're going to take one more story from chapter 19. Let's jump to the end of the story, past the parable of the 10 servants, past Jesus's triumphal entry, past Jesus's weeping and crying for Jerusalem, which by the way, if you have not read in a while, go back and read chapter 19 so that you can see Jesus weeping over Israel. And we'll talk about it in a bit. So starting in Luke 19 verse 45 and Luke jumps right into this story that of course you know very well. Then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. That was quick, right? He he doesn't there's no preamble to this at all. Right? In John in the book of John you got the triumphal entry and then Jesus goes to the temple that night and he looks around and there's not enough people there and he's like, "Now nah, I'm coming back tomorrow." And then he goes back the next day and does this. Right? But at this point, Luke just dives right in. Now, what was the problem? There was a system that was keeping people away from God. How? Economically. You go to the temple, you have yourself a dove, let's say, because you're doing a dove sacrifice that day. You go to the temple, you have a dove. You go show it to the priest. The priest says, that's a nice dove. It's not a good enough dove, though. You got to have a perfect dove if you're going to give it as a sacrifice. So what you can do is you can exchange some money because there's a temple, there's a temple, um, not tariff, there, there's a temple, um, 
currency, sorry. There's a temple currency that you have to use. So you gotta change a little money. You gotta take this dove over to that guy. That guy will give you a good dove. You're gonna have to pay a little bit from it. And then um, he'll take your dove so you don't have to worry about disposing of it. He'll take it, which of course he was gonna sell later. And then you can have the good dove. Then you can come and then you can create the sacrifice. There was an economic system that was keeping people away from God, right? It was a system of usury. And religiously, the priests had access and would only give it under certain circumstances. By the way, this is not the only time we've seen this kind of religious system that becomes very usurious to the people that it's supposed to be helping. We see this towards the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther reads the book of Romans and goes, what we're doing is not right. They're selling indulgences. They're selling um, the church, the, the Catholic church at the point was selling indulgences where you could go directly to heaven if you paid this kind of money. Not everybody had access. There were people standing in the way of letting people have access to God. And we know what happened with Martin Luther. He, he writes the 95 Thesis. He puts it on the wall. And then we're part of that Protestant tradition. You see, you got to understand something. When systems keep people away from God, those systems have to be flipped over. And the good news is Jesus does that through convicting hearts, through the downfall of people's choices sometimes, right? Through the power and the passion that Jesus puts into people to know him better and better and know that this system is keeping them away from him. So he says this, right? He says, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So he's pretty upset. Now, just to be clear, I've had this text quoted at me a few times because I don't know if you've seen that. We have t-shirts out in the lobby. Um, we don't really sell them. You can take one if you want. Um, we, we appreciate a donation for them. Um, even the coffee. I've had people say, you know, you're making this into a den of thieves. Two things. Number one, we're not charging you $100 for a t-shirt. So we're not thieves. Number two, number two, those don't have anything to do with your salvation. You don't have to wear a crosswalk t-shirt to get access to God here at Crosswalk. Although not a bad economic model, but a ridiculous, right? It's not the same thing, just to be clear, right? This, cause this was just not, this wasn't just commerce. They were stealing people's access to God. Right? They're blocking people from the throne of grace. So he does this, and he says, you've made it into a den of thieves. And then after that, he teaches daily in the temple. But the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and other leaders of people began planning to kill him. See, let's not forget. When systems of oppression are threatened, they come back with a vengeance. Jesus was challenging more than the dove merchants in the temple. He was challenging their very way of life, their livelihood and their status in the community. See, we understand this about systems because in America, we have a history of oppression. We had 400 years of a system of slavery that when it was challenged, it created a civil war. You know your history, right? And even when the Civil War was done, it didn't really help things as much as we had hoped that it would. And even in 1960, when we see the birth of the Civil Rights Movement, we see a system of oppression pushing back just aggressively on those who just wanted to be equal. And the reason why the system fought back is because it challenged their idea of scarcity 
if we let these people have some of what we have, we won't have as much of what we like. And so we've got to make sure we keep them oppressed so that it doesn't encroach on what we are used to and what we like having. Same thing that's happening here. Jesus is saying, no, you're not going to create this economic system so people can't get to God. And they say, yeah, but our livelihood is part of that. So what they do, they got together to kill him. And I hope you understand, they began planning how to kill him. They weren't beginning to plan how to counsel him off Twitter. They wanted to kill him physically. And I think sometimes, I actually had somebody sometimes say, you know, Jesus wasn't really a revolutionary. He never made anybody mad. And I was like, oh. And this person who said it to me, like, wonderful, wonderful. Jesus wouldn't, he never made anybody mad. I was like, oh. I mean, they killed him. And they're like, yeah, but no, but that just had to happen. I was like, no, scripture says a lot. They wanted to kill him because he was gonna mess things up for them. By the way, this is a precursor to what we see at the crucifixion when we see the curtain that kept the holy place from the most holy place. It kept people out of the most holy place, out of the presence of God. When Jesus is crucified, that curtain is torn from the top to the bottom. That curtain was three feet wide, over 100 feet long. Sorry, three feet thick, over 100 feet long. It took over 80 priests to wash the thing every few years. And it was torn from the top to the bottom. And that's God saying, I will not have a system that keeps people away from me. There is no way that's okay. You see, the only reason they didn't kill him, they couldn't think of any way to do it because the people hung on every word he said because the gospel perseveres. The gospel tears down and the gospel builds up. The gospel is listened to because people recognize it as their access to Jesus. It is their proximity to Jesus. It is the invitation and their acceptance to God and by God. So the question I have for you today is what obstacles keep you from Jesus? And how do you get around them? And listen, we all have things that stand in the way. Sometimes we were taught when we were younger that we weren't good enough to stand in front of the throne of grace, even though scripture says it again and again and again. We somehow were told that we weren't clean enough, we weren't good enough, we were still sinners, so how could God accept us? Which is crazy because the gospel says, while you were sinners, at just the right time, Jesus came to save you. But maybe that's something that's been in your heart for so long, it's really hard to get around. Maybe it's that you were told you weren't worth it and you feel like Jesus died for everyone else, but not really for you. I don't know what it is that has kept you away from God, those obstacles that have been put in our life. Maybe it's you know, abuse from a religious figure in your life. But maybe you've been stuck for so long that you can't see around that corner. So two things, one, Jesus can see you. And number two, it might be time for you to find a tree to climb, a way to get a different perspective, whether it's a book that you've been meaning to read, but maybe you really should. Maybe it's a different way of looking at your faith. You need to find a different vantage point from which to see this thing, from which to see Jesus. And then when you recognize there's stuff in the way, 
You gotta invite Jesus in and let him flip over the tables. If there's something in your way, let Jesus flip it over. Let Jesus take it out. Let him change the system. And by the way, you do that in your life personally, it'll be threatening. It'll be threatening to the people around you because you're changing. And they don't want you to change because they like the status quo. They're not bad people. They just love you the way you are. And when you begin to transform through the presence of God, it makes them uncomfortable because they might have to recognize the things they got to deal with too and the obstacles that are in their way as well. Listen, new life is uncomfortable, but that's what we're invited into. New life is transformational, but it threatens old systems. New life means that you've got a new vantage point from which to view your world, to view your life, to view your career, to view your family and your friends, to view the church. And all of a sudden that becomes very scary because we get used to having a certain view. And even if it's toxic or uncomfortable, we've become so used to it, it feels right. But when Jesus flips over those tables and releases you, when he says, I'm coming to your house today, it's a little bit of heaven that you get to experience. And it changes your perspective on everything. It has to. Don't let anything stand in the way between you and Jesus. Because he doesn't want anything to stand in the way either. And as hard as you're looking for Jesus right now, as hard as you're seeking his presence, Jesus is looking for you. Around corners, under walls, over to walls. Because in the end, we want to be able to say, like Paul said, for I'm convinced, neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, or death, nor life, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together today. Lord of grace, thanks for looking for us. Thanks for flipping over tables. And even thanks sometimes for putting trees in our way so we can climb up and see something from a different perspective so that we might see who you are. Lord, may we be willing to accept your presence in our lives. And may we be transformed by it. And Lord, as we seek to give others invitation into this life with you, we want to make sure that we accept the invitation that you've extended to us. So Lord, thank you. Pray this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.